Well, again, if you're visiting this morning, you're, you're arriving in the middle of a sermon series where we're touring the Old Testament to better understand the story of the Bible. We call it a, a meta-narrative. A narrative is a story. Meta means overarching. The Bible is intended by God to reveal an overarching story that explains all of reality and all of history. It's not a collection of random, uh, cute little stories that we teach people in Sunday school. It is the explanation for why things are the way they are, why there is something instead of nothing, how it all got here, how it began, where it's going, what is the purpose of life, what happens when you die, how you can have assurance of eternal life. These are the big questions in life, and the Bible answers them. And so we encourage and proclaim that everyone read this book, know it, and understand it. As we've studied the meta narrative of Scripture, one theme has certainly stood out as central to the entire story of the Bible. One theme the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. We don't use that term much anymore in our culture because we live in a democracy, I think. Hard to tell these days. Um, no, when we compare ourselves to other countries around the world, it could be a lot worse. We understand that. and We're constantly thankful for the country that we live in. And we pray that our freedoms will continue. But in nations where there is a king or queen on the throne, they understand sovereignty. And not a figurehead king or queen like, like England. Somebody with absolute authority. When they say, make it so, you better make it so. When they speak, it becomes law. This is sovereignty. And over all the affairs of man, there is one that is ultimately sovereign, and that is the God of the universe. In fact, God is sovereign over everything in the universe, every molecule in the universe. And this makes sense. If there is going to be a meta-narrative, if there's going to be a story that explains all of reality, there needs to be a divine storyteller, a divine author. He can't be part of the created story. Yes, he, he intervenes into the story, and in the person of Jesus Christ, he physically became part of the story. There must have been a time before the story even began that the storyteller existed. And that is exactly the way the Bible starts, right? In the beginning, God. Before there was beginning, God was already there writing the story. We have also seen another major theme in the Bible is, is that fallen man who was made in the image of God for the purpose of exalting God, worshiping God, loving God, and having dominion on the earth to reflect God's glory on the earth is opposed to the sovereignty of God. Fallen man wants to have his own sovereignty. So he tries to either eliminate or replace the God of the Bible 
with an imposter. The Bible calls this idolatry. At the end of the day, man is really just replacing God with himself when he does that. In the meta-narrative of the Bible, God chooses a people to be called his own. He makes a covenant, a contract, with Father Abraham and makes promises to Abraham that it would be an everlasting covenant and that through Father Abraham there would be a great nation on the earth that would reflect the glory of God and obey the laws of God and it would be a light to other nations. And through Father Abraham and this nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that nation became known as Israel. Israel was designed to worship and love the true sovereign God and be an example to all the peoples of the world. But Israel constantly fails to keep its part of the covenant. So God demonstrates his justice by disciplining Israel, often using other nations as the rod of his discipline. Not much different today. God's still using other nations to be the rod of his discipline, to discipline the nation Israel. But he also demonstrates his mercy and faithfulness by keeping Israel from utter annihilation. Throughout history, they, they come this close, time and time again, Israel, to being completely annihilated. Even in modern times, right? The Holocaust is not that long ago. Not that long ago. We've seen in the pages of Scripture God's sovereignty play out at the universal level when he creates the universe, the angelic level, the national level, the tribal level, the family level, and even all the way down to the individual level. The Bible's not written like a textbook. I think a lot of the intellectual elites in our world want the Bible to be written like the books they write. And yet, the, the book is filled with narrative, with, with story. There's history. There's poetry. The Psalms. Wisdom literature. Proverbs. And Ecclesiastes. Prophecy. Uh, epistles and instructions to the churches. And even Revelation. We call that apocalyptic literature. Filled with all kinds of interesting and fascinating and even scary imagery that's hard to understand. And so often the academic elites push the Bible aside as some kind of unsophisticated storybook. But this is how God has chosen to reveal himself to mankind. And each of those genres speak to us in, in different ways, do they, do they not? I'm glad that there's music in the Bible, 150 psalms. Isn't music an important part of our life? Even the academic elites love music. And then they get upset that the Bible's filled with, with music. Well, if this is a book that explains all of reality, it would be written like a textbook with footnotes, right? And a bibliography at the end. Well, who's God, who's God going to cite? <laughs> He is the source. 
fact, the Bible says that. Who has been his counselor? Who counsels the Almighty? Most recently, through our sermon series, we have seen God sovereignly discipline Israel in Judah through first the Assyrian conquest in the north, the northern kingdom, which took the title Israel, and then the southern kingdom, Judah, disciplined by the Babylonian conquest, and and God allowed captives to be brought into those eastern lands by exile. Through the prophets, he said, 70 years, and then you can begin to return. We have also seen how various individuals responded to the sovereignty of God. Daniel was steadfast and faithful, along with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, while they were in exile. They accepted God's sovereignty. They trusted God in the face of life-threatening persecution. They provide us with a model of how we ought to respond in the face of persecution, which, as we know, is coming. And so we need to prepare ourselves. Thank you, God, for giving us the example of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We were also given... Examples of those who were reluctant to bend the knee to God's sovereignty. Nebuchadnezzar, right? The Babylonian king. Even in the face of great supernatural miracles, it it took him a long time. In fact, God had to supernaturally humble him by turning him almost into an animal. He went crazy, lost his mind ate grass out in the field for seven years and finally accepted and embraced God's sovereignty. And we, we were thinking maybe we'll see him in heaven. He sounds like a true believer. But what about the regular guy? What about the regular guy? Do we have a record of the little guy? You know, just the person on the side who's not a main character in the story, a bit player. What do they call that in Hollywood? Um, Extras. Extras. We're all extras. Most of us aren't going to be a Daniel or a Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego, or certainly a Nebuchadnezzar. Does the Bible have a record of a little old nobody from nowhere? That little guy living that seemingly insignificant life who just wants a quiet life and kind of be left alone. Maybe have some aspirations of doing something important. But they tend to be those kind of me-centered aspirations. How is this person supposed to live in the light of God's sovereignty? What about the person who doesn't even really give much thought to God's unfolding plans in the world? Does the Bible have anything to say about this type of person? Because let's face it, most of us aren't going to find ourselves on center stage as the leader of some empire or as a prophet of God trying to remain steadfast in the face of a hostile despot. 
Most of us just get up each morning and put on our pants one leg at a time. And just trying to cope each day. Maybe do something a little fun. Try to have a good day. Be faithful, get my work done. Have a decent meal. Love my family. Get to bed at a decent hour. Maybe even sleep through the night. (laughs) Is that too much to ask? And before you know it, day after day after day runs together. Without having much impact on the kingdom. Today I want to introduce you to just such a guy living in Persia. Actually, it's a girl. Her name is Hadassah. But you know her better by her Persian name, Esther. All those people in exile had their Jewish names converted into Babylonian or Persian names. At this time, the the Persians have conquered the Babylonians. So it's the Persian Empire now. Esther, I hear pages flipping. Where's Esther? She's after Ezra and Nehemiah. Her, her Persian name, Esther, probably taken from the Persian god Ishtar. You know that name, that really bad movie made in the 90s? Ishtar. Her story takes place between 483 and 473 B.C., just after the first wave of the remnant begins to return to Israel. Just as the exiles left Israel in three waves... They return back to Israel in three waves. So Esther falls between the first and second wave of Jews who returned back to the motherland. The first wave was led by Zerubbabel, and then the second wave, Ezra, the third wave, Nehemiah. So she actually comes before Ezra and Nehemiah. At this time... The Persian emperor is named Ahasuerus. His Greek name is Xerxes. It would be his son, Artaxerxes, who orders the rebuilding of the temple and the wall around the temple. Xerxes is a lot like Nebuchadnezzar before Nebuchadnezzar was converted. He's prideful, self-absorbed, and completely oblivious to the sovereign God of the universe. The story opens with the king, Xerxes, throwing himself a party to celebrate his own greatness. How do you like that? And it goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. comes a picture of all of us in our pride where every day is a party to celebrate me. Let me give you a little side note here. Why don't you try celebrating somebody else for a change? Once all his guests are well liquored up, he calls for his queen, Vashti, to come make an appearance and show off how beautiful she is In his pride, look how beautiful my queen is. And she's busy throwing a party 
for all the female movers and shakers of the kingdom. And she sends word, I ain't coming. And the king is humiliated. And his counselors say, you need to do something about this. Otherwise, news is going to get out and it's going to set a precedent in the kingdom. And all the women are going to begin to rebel. And so Vashti is stripped of her royal title and preparations are made to find a new queen. In chapter 2, we are introduced to a Jew living in the Shushan province of Persia named Mordecai. His great-grandfather Kish was deported during the Babylonian exile under Nebuchadnezzar. We also meet his niece, Esther, and find out that she is an orphan being raised by her uncle Mordecai. And so they're, they're living in Persia. And they're not first generation living in Persia. By now, it's been 70 years, right? That's a long time. And God told those in exile to have homes and plant gardens and be part of the community. And so there's a group of people now very entrenched in the community. They've carved out a niche. They have a daily routine. They have friends. And here's Esther, this young lady. And can you think back to when you were 14, 15? I have a 16-year-old daughter and a 13-year-old daughter. That's right in the ballpark for Esther. I mean, what are they thinking about each day? Certainly not about their lives possibly being used by God to save an entire race of people. They just want people to like them. <laughs> you know, they're very self-conscious at that age. Just want to have a little fun. I guess I'm going to have to get married someday, soon. They got married really young back then. And this decree goes out that all the most beautiful virgins in the empire were going to be part of really this grand beauty pageant. Esther is chosen from her district for her surpassing beauty. Unlike Daniel, Esther keeps her true heritage a secret according to the instructions of her uncle. Mordecai said, don't, don't let people know you're a Jew. She is placed under the charge of the king's eunuch and is given seven maidservants to help her make preparations to be examined by the king. For a whole year, she goes to beauty school or finishing school. Imagine having an entourage to help you do your makeup and hair in royal clothing and learn royal protocol and how to act in front of the king and what to say and what not to say. And I know some of you are fascinated by royal protocol. I know the country is. Remember when, who's old enough to remember when Princess Diana was married? It was like in the middle of the night here and I, I remember that like half our country was glued to the TV to watch this 
commoner marry into royalty. I'm old enough to remember her, her train filling up Westminster Abbey. When you're standing in line at the supermarket, there's always something in the tabloids about the royals. I remember one comedian saying, how pathetic, they're not even our royal family. We've got plenty of gossip here. Why do we need England's gossip? At this point, we can only imagine what's going on in the mind of this young lady. Is she scared or is she excited? Maybe a little of both. I imagine that she is rather flattered at, at that age. Funny thing about junior high or early high schoolers is they have this attitude where they want all the attention in the world one second and then they want to be invisible the next. Look at me, look at me, look, don't look at me. It makes ministry to these young people exciting. It keeps you on your toes. Probably exasperating for mom and dad inside the house, though. Who, who is she this minute? <laughs> it was certainly never her dream or intent to end up in the royal palace. Did she even know she was competing against the most beautiful women in the empire to become the next queen? Did she have any idea of the magnitude of the situation? How could she? Like any of us at this age, she was probably just living one day at a time without giving much thought to the ramifications of her decisions or the meaning of her life. She's just living life without any acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. Esther is a peculiar book of the Bible. It is different than every other book of the Bible in this. And some of you know this. This is going to be shocking to the rest of you. God isn't mentioned in the entire book. This is a story about God. God's name isn't mentioned once in the book of Esther. I don't hear any pages flipping, so apparently my authority is now trustworthy in this church. Usually there's that one person who's like, oh, I'm going to check this out. And that's good. Be like the Bereans. And yet, it surely is a book all about God. Esther's a book all about God. He's the main character of the story. And they don't mention his name once. The book's about his sovereignty, his faithfulness to protect his people in the supernatural way. His divine providence makes all things come to pass that he's ordained through the actions and decisions of human agents. It's the way God's sovereignty works. He somehow and miraculously through our choices and decisions and actions makes all things come to pass. He is there in your life and in my life whether or not you acknowledge His presence. He is there. I have come to the personal view that this book is written in this way so that we would have a record of God's sovereignty from the point of view of a person who's caught up in the grand drama of God's meta-narrative who doesn't seem to be giving much thought to God's plans in her life whatsoever. That's my personal view. 
Why would God include a book like this? Because this is how people live their life. And so I'm thankful we have a book like this. I can relate to Esther. This was my life before Jesus Christ opened my eyes. Just plodding through life. And then one day you wake up and you're in some overwhelming situation that you can't process, a problem that you can't solve. And maybe for the first time in your life, you realize you're in over your head. And you've been for a long time. And that's when people begin to search for God, for answers. And that's what can make you so valuable in the kingdom of God because you know the answers. You have God's word. He's been training you, discipling you for special moments where you can speak truth into the lives of people who may, have, may, may never have given God a second thought in their life. Sometimes we have to initiate those conversations, but sometimes the situation just presents itself. God tees it up for you. Gives you a slow fastball right down the middle of the plate. Are you, are you ready? Are you aware? Are you prepared? So you don't miss the opportunity? looking for that Esther out there who's in over their head. We should live like Daniel, but all too often we are like Esther, naively passing through life, wondering what tomorrow will bring. Then one day we find ourselves caught up in some overwhelming situation and we haven't practiced the presence of God in our lives, so we're completely unprepared for the moment. So, of course, Esther wins the beauty pageant and becomes the new queen. Talk about your reversal of fortune stories. It's the stuff of Cinderella or Little Orphan Annie. Where do you think we get these stories from? The original story. And without a right view of God's sovereignty and providence... Esther would be tempted to think that she earned this privilege or that it's her lucky day. I don't know. How do 14, 15-year-olds think? It's been a while since I was there. Did we even think? (laughs) Not to insult our teens here. We were all there. We want you to do some thinking. That's why you're in here and you're hearing the sermon this morning. I don't think Esther was thinking about using her new position of power to influence the world for the glory of God. She's just enjoying the ride. But all that's about to change. In chapter 3, we're introduced to the villain, Haman. It's an old villain, really. Haman is a descendant of King Agag. Remember that name? King Agag was the king of the Amalekites that Saul was supposed to slaughter, but he didn't. Kept him alive so he could brag and gloat. 
And Samuel the prophet took Saul's sword and chopped Agag to pieces. That was the moment when Saul lost the Holy Spirit, left him. God chose another, chose David to be king. Do you remember the Amalekites? They were descendants of Esau. During the Exodus, they would viciously and cowardly attack the back of the line where all the women, children, disabled, and elderly were marching. God cursed the Amalekites and ordained their complete extinction, but because of Saul's disobedience, it took a lot longer than it needed to to rid the world of these godless barbarians. God allowed Haman... We see God at work here. The, 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 Esther doesn't say so, but certainly it's God's providence that allows Haman, this descendant of Agag, to rise to a position of authority in the Persian Empire. Haman has this huge head. He is even more prideful than Xerxes. Haman enacts this law that everyone should bow down to Haman when they see him pass through the the streets. But Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, either because he's a, a good, faithful Jew who will not bow down to anyone but God, or because he knows Haman's nationality And there's a grudge that's been going on for centuries. Maybe both. But all we know is Mordecai is not bowing down before this fool. And Haman gets so angry that he convinces King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes that there's this people out there, they're called the Jews, they have their own laws, and they have no regard for your laws, and we should exterminate all of them. And once again, we see the forces of evil trying to wipe out God's people from the face of the earth. Ever since God chose the Jews to be his covenant people, the forces of darkness have been trying in vain to eradicate the Jewish race. Though God will allow his people to be severely disciplined for a season... Due to their disobedience, time and time again, he has sovereignly intervened to rescue the Jewish people. Even today, Israel is surrounded by Jew-hating enemies who have publicly proclaimed their intentions to eliminate the Jewish race. And most of the world is supportive of these regimes, labeling these regimes as the victims of Jewish oppression. And we know that's not the case. It's one of those fascinating observations in our world that strengthens my faith in the Bible. It's it's exactly what we see in the Bible. The Jewish people trying to live a life of integrity in Israel, and you've got people hell-bent on destroying them, digging tunnels under fences, trying to get to them, blowing themselves up in public places. And the world says, shame on you, Jews. Whatever you're doing, it's making these people so mad that they have to resort 
to such violence. And we're starting to see now the world blame Christians for the violence of other peoples. Well, if you Christians weren't so fill-in-the-blank, other people wouldn't kill and maim and blow up other people. The world's saying, stop being so virtuous. It's bugging other people. I guess that's what they're saying. So poor little Esther finds herself smack in the middle of God's greatest drama. By God's providence, she becomes the unlikely player who has the potential to be the agent through whom God delivers his chosen people. If she knew this before the beauty pageant started, she would have been like, "Uh uh-uh. I'll go hide. And I'm thankful that God doesn't show us our futures. I mean, sometimes because we're control freaks and we have anxiety, we want to know the future. You don't want to know your future. It's a grace of God that we don't know. I'm certain I'll die one day. And through my faith in Christ, I'm certain that I will spend eternity with Him in heaven. And other than those two things, everything else, I'm just waiting to find out what it's going to look like. Just like you. I've got my plans. You should plan. But I hold them lightly because everything can change. You know that. And the young people in here don't know that that well yet. But life can change at the drop of a hat. One phone call, one test result from the doctor, one careless mistake on the road while you're driving. And so we need to live life with intentionality, knowing that there's no promises about tomorrow. Esther's got this dilemma. She's the one person who could approach the king and save her people, but the law of the land is you don't approach the king unless you've been summoned, and it's been months since Ahasuerus called for his queen. Apparently he likes them beautiful and far off until I call on you. And if that's how you shepherd your wife, shame on you. That is not a model for us. And if she approaches the king without being summoned, he can have her executed on the spot. What's Mordecai doing through all this? He's, he's down in the court, the royal courts, fasting and wearing sackcloth. And it was illegal to wear sackcloth. No one's allowed to be sad in the king's courts. And word gets sent to Esther, and Esther sends a change of clothes down to him. And he's like, I'm not changing my clothes. Wake up, Esther. The entire Jewish race is on the brink of extermination. Now's the time for fasting and prayer. I'm going to call your attention to just one portion of Scripture. So if you're in Esther, turn to chapter 4, 
verses 13 to 16. It's really the climax of the book. This is kind of the, the money quote, the one I want you to take home with you today. Esther chapter 4, verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Great line. He, he first rebukes her and warns her, don't think you're escaping God's judgment. God will deliver his people. If not through you, then through someone else. But then he turns it to the other side of the coin and gives positive encouragement. Think about it, Esther. God's sovereignty. What if your whole life has been arranged by God to put you in this spot for just such a time as this? Do you think about that during the day? The people you encounter? Things that happen in your life, situations where you're like, I wish the situation would have never happened. I wish it would just go away. It's too hard. I can't figure it out. It's stressful. But what if God put you there for just such a time as this? You're the one person he has specially ordained and trained all of your life history, your gifts, your talents, your strengths, your weaknesses, all of that arranged by God just for such a time as this. Are you feeling more significant now? It's the right kind of significance because God is what is, is the one who's making your life significant. Trying to find significance in your life apart from God is a fool's errand. One of the lessons today is that whether or not anyone acknowledges the sovereignty of God doesn't change the fact that He is sovereign. Unbelievers may think they are sovereign over their lives, but they're not. Materialists think their life is in their own hands. Some will admit that the laws of the universe in, in, in chance and chemical reactions somehow determine all that comes to pass. So in a sense... They're not sovereign, and when they want to excuse their bad behavior or their lawlessness, they'll point to, well, it was just the chemical reactions in my brain, and isn't really my fault. Couldn't help it, it was just my nature and my nurture. But when they want to make their own decisions, all that goes out the window, and now they're sovereign again. They want their cake and eat it too. The truth is that God is sovereign and we can't escape that fact and we shouldn't want to escape that fact. For the mature believer, the sovereignty of God becomes one of the most important and most cherished doctrines in the Bible. In the face of evil or great suffering, it is tempting 
to want to deny the sovereignty of God because we don't understand how an all-powerful God would allow such things to happen. But the solution to the problem isn't to deny God's sovereignty. That just makes the problem worse. And the scriptures won't allow it. Would you really want to live in a world where everything happened according to chance, where there was no ultimate meaning to anything that happens in the universe, where evil and suffering have no purpose, where our lives don't really matter in the long run? As one famous player on the world stage said, what does it matter at this point anyways? Now, God's sovereignty is biblical and necessary for life to have any ultimate meaning. Esther found this out in a big way. Mordecai reminds us that God will deliver his people. His sovereign will is going to be accomplished with or without Esther's obedience. If she disobeys, he'll use that too. But how much better for God to use our obedience? There's no well-done, good, and faithful servant at the end of the day if God has to use you through your disobedience. Just brings God more glory, in a sense. If we obey Him and His will is accomplished through our obedience, brings Him more glory. We see in Esther's response the seed of faith taking root. What does she say? In response to Mordecai, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king. I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. It's just, it's baby faith. She's like, I got no other choice, so I guess I got to do it. I'll fast and pray, and if I perish, I'll perish. There isn't a lot of courage there yet. Not a whole lot of confidence that God's going to come through. We have a choice to make each day as Christians. Will we live deliberately in light of God's sovereignty, obeying His commands that have been revealed to us in the passages of Scripture, or will we live reluctantly, hoping we could just slide by in life, not looking for opportunities to glorify God by doing courageous things in His name? The Word of God is clear that there is really only one choice. You will be part of God's Grand plans, whether you want to be or not. The Christian gladly accepts this calling and looks for ways to glorify God and impact the kingdom for the sake of his great name. You don't have to win beauty pageants and become the queen to impact the kingdom. In fact, it has been my experience that people who seek fame and fortune because they think it will give them a platform to exalt God usually forget to exalt God when they get on the platform. You know, people play the lottery like, God, if I win the big one, I'm going to do so much for the kingdom, but in the meantime, I don't have the funds. 
God, if you make me famous, I will proclaim the gospel. But until that day, they don't proclaim the gospel. What makes them think when they get there, they're going to proclaim? God, make me a missionary to some far-off exotic country and I will win souls for Christ. How about right here in your own neighborhood? Well, I have to see these people every day and I don't want them to think I'm weird. If we have thankful, obedient hearts that are ready to serve God each day in whatever situation His providence takes us, there's no telling how we may be used by God to change history. Our model becomes Jesus Christ, the faithful Son and servant of God. Unlike Esther who said, If I perish, then I'll perish to save my people. But Jesus, in effect, said, When I perish to save my people, I will perish. Yes, he prayed in Gethsemane if there was any other way than the cross, but his heart wanted to do the will of his Father. I encourage you to read the book of Esther for yourself. It's such a great story. It's an easy read. Perfectly written story. Doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. It's a a wonderful story. I don't want to ruin all the surprises. There's some really neat twists of fate in there. Obviously, um, the... Jews are not annihilated. I'm not spoiling the the ending. I mean, they're still here. So, amen and amen to that. But read the story for yourself. And you won't see God's name in the story, but you can't deny He is the main character. Let it remind you of God's sovereignty so that you can cultivate trust and obedience in the Lord. Let the miraculous way He faithfully delivers His people give you peace and assurance That you are secure in the Father's love through faith in Jesus Christ. And let the story remind you of the cross where God delivered his people from certain doom all because one man perfectly trusted in God's plan to defeat the devil even though it meant certain death for him. Because Christ died literally for us, we can die figuratively to our own selfish desires, dreams, expectations, and aspirations, and desire to just live a quiet life, not get involved. We can die to that, trust that God is good, and He will use us to accomplish His good will as we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, following in His footsteps of obedience and love and truth. We can live like Jesus Instead of Esther. We can live like Jesus instead of Esther. But you know if you find yourself in Esther today. Let her life be an example to you as well. Maybe for just such a time as this. Maybe today is that day where you wake up and realize. You are part of something way bigger. Than your cornflakes. And your 9 to 5 job. Get in the game. It's exciting. You're on God's team and He wins. Father God, thank You for, through faith in Christ, putting us on the winning team. Shake us out of our slumber. May we be excited about Your sovereignty. May it give us steadfast boldness to get in the game and glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.